0: Dialogue, Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Governor Tim Walz's stay-at-home order expires on May 18th. Additional retail businesses will reopen on that day, and other services are slated to resume on June 1st. Polling data in Minnesota and nationwide indicates that a majority of respondents support efforts to contain the spread of the coronavirus through shelter-in-place directives and the closure of businesses and services that are deemed non-essential. A study using cell phone location data initially gave Minnesotans an A grade for their compliance with social distancing, but in recent weeks, that grade has declined to a D. This week on Dialogue Minnesota... University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Sociology and Law Joshua Page joins us to discuss the reasons why we do or do not comply with governmental directives and the advice of medical experts. Professor Page, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks for having me. As the weather warms, Minnesotans have flocked to the outdoors despite Governor Wall's stay-at-home order. We should mention that people are, of course, allowed to go outside for exercise as long as they practice social distancing, but authorities are receiving complaints about groups congregating and some businesses operating in defiance of these rules. We should make clear that you have not directly studied the effects of the coronavirus on society, but as a sociology professor, what is your guess as to why some people are disobeying the governor's orders?
1: You know, I think a lot of it has to do with trust, whether people trust the information that's out there. And a lot of that depends on, you know, do they trust who's giving the information? Do they trust, you know, the government and particularly the parts of government that are saying that this is a big deal, that people, you know, that it is a big risk? Um, do they trust the media? that's saying that they should be social distancing or not? Or do they trust another part of the media that's saying it's largely not a big deal and it's safe to go outside? You know, do they trust the experts? You know, these sort of traditional experts in, in medicine and so forth. And I think, you know, those kind of questions are really important specifically for people that aren't in hot spots, right? Where they're not knowing as many people, seeing as many people that are affected, um, that are dying and so forth. And so, yeah, so I think I think a really critical issue when I think about this is, is people's trust.
0: Is it possible to generalize which groups of people are more likely to mistrust the government and law enforcement? Uh, and do you think these are the same groups that are more likely to disregard stay-at-home orders? That's a
1: good question. You know, I did see that there's one study that's under review by a psychologist that shows that conservatives are more likely not following the social distancing recommendations, not wearing masks and so forth. And that study suggests that it's because they don't believe the so-called liberal media. That suggests, in some other readings I've seen, suggests that, you know, political polarization, and it's a really big deal here, is sort of affecting people's attitudes about the Pandemic and their behavior. So yeah, so I think that that's the only sort of data I've seen. Now there are various you know reasons why people don't trust the government. Um, it can be ideological, you know, more of a libertarian bent um, to not you know trusting so-called big government, right? But I think what shapes people's perspectives of trust of government. Actually, is their interactions with the government. And for a lot of people, particularly in low income, racially segregated areas, that comes from interactions with the police and social service agencies and so forth. And if people have negative interactions or what they perceive to be negative interactions with those agencies, they tend to become cynical about government, cynical about um, government agencies. And research shows that. When people have negative interactions with one agency, particularly if they're repetitive, they tend to transpose those to other agencies of the government and just develop a general sort of distrust of, quote unquote, the system.
0: Is this sort of an historical trend? By that, I mean, if we look back in the past, there seems to at least anecdotally have been a time when people tended to be more accepting and trustworthy of people who were identified as experts, if they were in academia, uh, if they were uh, in uh, business, if they were in government—people uh, with a certain specialty in one area—and it seems that over the years, uh, more and more people are are distrusting. Uh, folks who in the past, they they may have had a great deal of trust in. Is this a historical trend that we're seeing and coronavirus and the reaction to it is just a manifestation of something that seems to have been yeah. happening for a while?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really great question. Again, I, I'm not aware of data on that, but I am aware of, you know, writings particularly about politics from Goldwater through Nixon, through Reagan. You know, the attack on big government was often attack also on the experts and the so-called bureaucrats, right? We hear it now in the statements about the so-called deep state. Um, so I think we've seen a lot of that as part of the right sort of uh, attack on government as general, in general, trying to sort of limit government, which really is about limiting a part of government, a part of those that are associated more with uh, the experts, right, This the, the health, um sector of it social welfare sector of it you know but it also can come from the left you know government is is a bunch of technocrats that are about social control and social engineering in a way that's not very liberatory also and so i think you know particularly with the amount of inequality we have right now there's you know i think for people that are you know, in severe disadvantage, I think there could be a real distrust of the experts too, that a sense of just not caring about folks. So I think politically, particularly on the right, that's been definitely a historical movement that's marked the politics, especially since the you know the 1960s. But of course, you know, the left movements of the 1960s and still somewhat today are about distrusting government, distrusting the man, if you will.
0: Our guest is University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Sociology and Law, Joshua Page. We're talking about the reasons why we choose to comply with or ignore governmental directives and precautionary advice in the age of COVID-19. What role do you think social media has played in eroding trust in institutions like the media, government, science, etc.? To the
1: extent that media facilitates, you know, what they say, sort of information bubbles where people get sort of reinforcing information. I was listening to a, you know, a podcast called The Rabbit Hole. Put out by um, the New York Times that's about sort of how the algorithm on YouTube keeps suggesting reinforcing videos and so forth so I think it can create this feedback loop and if part of that loop is about you know people get into these feedback loops get into these bubbles that are very distrustful of government and so forth it could be really reinforcing and then you turn on Fox News and you know, You know Laura Ingram calling it a hoax and saying there's no actual proof that social distancing works and so forth. You get these self-reinforcing mechanisms across media too. Um, And to the extent that those are also overlapping social groups, you can get a lot of sort of social reinforcement, media reinforcement that could be hard to sort of break through.
0: If we look at past crises in American history, it seems that a lot of partisanism was put aside as we tackled these issues, whether it was World War II, uh, whether it was, um, I guess, in more recent history, 9-11. Now, obviously, there are points in history where there wasn't a rally behind the cause. For example, the Vietnam War was extremely divisive. But if we look back at 9-11 and even to some extent the early days of the COVID-19 crisis, when we saw in our state uh, Republicans and Democrats coming together to support Governor Walls with his um, social distancing policies and stay-at-home order, obviously, as time has progressed, uh, the partisanship has greatly increased. Is this something that you think is is just a symptom of our time, or... uh, is this something that uh, has really always been out there? That it's pretty difficult to get everybody behind an idea to deal with a crisis.
1: No, that's a good question. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think there's always going to be division. You know, there's always divisions. There's always. Um You know conflict around these things, but I but I definitely take what you're saying And and I think you know, I think part of what's unique here is the messages from the top You know the signals that the cues that are being given from the president on down Where immediately this Gets framed as a left-wing, you know a democratic As the president said a democratic hoax to take him down in the november election and that gets repeated on fox news And so the signals were sort of immediately there. We can even think differently about you know, Uh, George W. Bush with 9-11 right immediately it was about sort of at least the signals were all about coming together and so forth So I think those those signals from the top are really important and especially in an environment where you know, there is such um, if not explicit coordination implicit coordination between certain forms of media you know and the presidency and then comes again sort of self-reinforcing. So I think from the beginning of this It was very polarized right in that Polarizing from the top, you know attacking governors that were democrats, you know in michigan and so forth and so We might look back overly romantic about earlier periods, right? I think we read the history and so forth, but at least from my own sort of anecdotal experience of, you know, say 9-11 versus this is immediately this got framed from the top in a partisan framework.
0: Governor Walls has established a phone number and an email address to report violations of social distancing and his stay-at-home order. Do you have any theories as to who may be more likely to report social distancing violators to authorities? I haven't heard
1: about any data that's out there about people doing it. You know, I don't in general, other than to say I would not be surprised if there's a fair amount of calls and reports, you know, from from all sectors, but particularly perhaps not from sectors that have a real distrust In the police and in the government and would fear that they would maybe come to their house and maybe get them in trouble you know particularly those that are feel more sort of powerless vis-a-vis law enforcement and the government but you know i think in the last several decades we've come to rely on police you know law enforcement considered really broadly, right, for all kinds of things, whether it be addiction, whether it be mental illness, whether it be, you know, all kinds of things. And so it's not, wouldn't it be surprising to me if that's sort of the first reaction, you know, we don't have many other options if we feel threatened, if we feel fearful or whatnot that there is this sort of reaction to call the police whether there's a problem in schools problem in the in the workplace or so forth but i think um i would assume that people that have not had negative experiences with law enforcement and don't anticipate having you know would be probably more likely to call the police but again you know it depends on how threatening people feel the situation is i think
0: Our guest is University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Sociology and Law, Joshua Page. We're talking about the reasons why we choose to comply with or ignore governmental directives and precautionary advice in the age of COVID-19. Do you have a guess as to whether or not we will see more people ignoring stay-at-home orders and social distancing as summer approaches?
1: My guess would be probably the longer this goes the more impatient people are going to be the nicer it gets the more people are going to want to be outside. I would also say it depends on the trajectory of the virus whether you know the trajectory of infections and deaths. but again, so if there's a lot of them and everybody sort of senses it's right outside their door then I would expect more cooperation with the orders. Now, if, if it still stays sort of like it is, again, I think that really depends on people's level of, of trust in the information um, that they're getting. And if it if they don't have good trust in it and it's beautiful outside of it, yeah, I would expect more and more people going out. Um, you know, And of course, uh, businesses are going to become even more desperate. People that are out of work are becoming more desperate. So I don't really know, but I could see there would be potential reasons why it could increase in the summer.
0: Do you think the government nationally, statewide, and at the local level has adequately conveyed the rules and expectations for how people should behave during this epidemic? Uh, And and how could they better relay their message to groups who often are mistrusting of authority?
1: Mm -hmm. That's a really good point, you know. You know, I think there's been a really good effort in Minnesota to present information and present it in a digestible way. So I think if people want the information and are searching it out, I think it's out there. Now, again, not everybody pays attention to those media. So perhaps, you know, putting information on flyers and, and, you know, going door to door, but also to people that, that don't have housing that are homeless and so forth so i think you know perhaps that would be a way to actually get people out and be able to sort of distribute that information safely in a physically distant manner but um i think you know from what i when i've listened to the to their um, task force reports and so forth i find the information thorough and digestible but that takes some effort yeah. So I think it's, you know, really reaching populations that are not so connected to to these kind of media.
0: In New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio is being criticized for the way city police are enforcing social distancing orders. Uh, data shows that 81 percent of those who received violations were black or Hispanic. Is this something that is disproportionately impacting communities of color, not just in New York, but uh, elsewhere in the country?
1: Well, my understanding is the virus is definitely disproportionately affecting people of color and, you know, low-income people, people of color, people in prisons, people in, you know, nursing homes. In terms of arrests, I have not seen much information beyond New York to support that one way or the other. I think it's, Probably a spatial phenomenon, too, is that we still live in a significantly segregated society. And there are places that if you put a big police presence in, you're going to disproportionately arrest people of color, low-income people. So I, I would assume that because they're policing primarily in certain areas, though it could also be that people are not heeding the social distancing warning in particular communities because of this generalized distrust of law enforcement, distrust of the government, distrust of media.
0: You study the criminal justice system. Let's talk about how the coronavirus has forced changes in that system. Many counties in the U.S. are looking at early releases for prisoners because of the pandemic. How are they deciding who gets released? Is there a danger to the public or does this reveal that we can be or or should be more lenient towards inmates convicted of certain nonviolent crimes?
1: So there's both efforts to reduce the population in local jails as well as state and federal prisons. At a local level, one way that they're doing it is changing, at least temporarily, policies and practices around um, bail. Having a policy, for example, of not setting monetary bail for anybody that's charged with a misdemeanor or low level felony offense. And therefore, if they're not given monetary bail, then they're not held in the jail. So they'll just come back or get rather than um, putting out arrest warrants for people so that they get brought down to the jail, giving them a summons for a court date sometime in the future and then for releases i think both at the, you know county level and in the state prisons the emphasis has been on people that have a short amount of time left in their sentence with the theory being if somebody is serving a sentence and they're about to get out in 6 months they're not going to be more of a public safety risk now than they will be in 6 months as well as those who have you know pre-existing conditions uh, people that are older um, you know and and i think um, the emphasis is on non so far, you know, non-violent, low-level drug offenders. So there's good reason that, the, that it shouldn't be limited to that. A lot of people that have been accused of violent crime are not necessarily violent people. A lot of them have done a lot of time, have changed, have, you know, what we as criminologists say, aged out of crime. So
0: should we be more lenient towards inmates convicted of certain non-violent crimes in this period and even beyond once we get past the no. COVID-19 pandemic?
1: I don't think I would frame it in the way of being lenient. The sentences we give here, you know, particularly compared to other countries, are pretty lengthy. I think, you know, I think being more um, realistic and effective and just is definitely something we should think about. And you know, does it make sense to hold, you know, again, people into their 60s, 70s, and 80s when we know they're not a, a threat to public safety? Does it make sense to hold people in jail pre-trial unless there's a demonstrated risk that they're a demonstrated, you know, risk to themselves or others or a, a big flight risk, right? Instead of just handing out monetary bail to everybody that's accused of certain types of crimes, for example, you know, does it make sense to be sending people back to prisons for technical parole and probation violations rather than committing a new crime or being involved in, in criminal activity? So, you know, the pandemic you know, hopefully will force us to ask these kind of questions, keep asking these questions and say, you know, all right, we did things differently during the pandemic. Would it make more sense both for, you know, for justice, both for public safety Um, to not, you know, putting people in prison does not necessarily, you know, it might provide public safety while they're incapacitated, but often people come out of prison in worse conditions than they went in. Are there other ways to deal with those situations that are more effective and actually are better for public safety?
0: Our guest is University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Sociology and Law Joshua Page, We're talking about the reasons why we choose to comply with or ignore governmental directives and precautionary advice in the age of COVID-19. Do you think COVID-19 may become a catalyst for reforming the criminal justice system?
1: You know, it's hard to say, but I
0: think, again, I think it's forcing
1: important questions into the public arena. For example, I saw today something came across my email that Congressman Jerry Nadler was trying to get language into one of the COVID-19 funding bills that if, you know, money goes to local governments, particularly to local courts, that they will have to stop, put a moratorium on, you know, collecting court fines and fees that have exploded in recent years, that saddle defendants with all kind of debt just for going through the legal process. So, you know, it's these kind of things. And again, this changing policies around bail. There's going to be people are going to say, "Why are we? Why are we going back to the way it was?" Right? Do, is there really good em- reason to go back to the way it was, or should we keep pushing in the ways we've been going? And you know, think really seriously about, you know, compassionate release. That's rarely used in this country, but is used extensively in commutations that are used extensively in other countries and so forth. So I think it will force hard questions, but necessary questions, whether and how those questions get answered is anyone's guess.
0: This is obviously a time of great fear and uncertainty in this country, fear about the uh, the physical threat of COVID-19, fear about uh, economic issues that people are running into, loss of jobs, loss of uh, investment money, loss of businesses in some cases. How important is leadership right now? And I'm thinking back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President of the United States during arguably two of the greatest crises in U.S. history, the Great Depression and World War II. He had a very I guess, uncanny way of connecting one-to-one with Americans. Back in that day, of course, we had radio, newspapers, magazines, and newsreels. That was about the extent of the ability to disseminate information. But Franklin Delano Roosevelt was known for his fireside chats, radio conversations, where he spoke in a one-to-one manner to America. Thinking back of the, uh, the statement, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, or his way of conveying uh, information about the banking crisis. Today, I want to talk to you about banking. He was able to simplify things, gain trust. Is this maybe a kind of leadership style that should be emulated by uh, our current leaders, whether they're at the national or local level? Do they need to work harder to connect with individuals and uh, convey complex issues in in an understandable manner? Yes. From my personal perspective,
1: I think so. I think the way you preface the question is exactly right. There's all kinds of fear. There's all kinds of anxiety. And, you know, that can be used to create division or to, you know, intensify divisions that exist. It can be, you know, it can easily lend to scapegoating. Of you know, particular ethnic or racial groups or of immigrants or or what have you, or it can be an opportunity to try to really bring together people around sort of a, a common cause. And I think you know, in this incredibly polarized environment, unfortunately, what we've been seeing is a lot more of the former tact of fueling divisions but i think you know i think one thing i would love to see is politicians emphasize that our independence our freedom our liberty as individuals really depends on our interdependence right is is people actually pulling together people giving their fair share you know people you know paying their taxes people contributing um, people taking care of each other is what really allows us you know, to have the freedoms we have and to enjoy it That message often gets lost and it becomes a sort of radical sort of libertarian Individualism, right? Like I need to get my I need to get out there and get my haircut I need to do this stuff, which is understandable, right? But I think it gets lost is so much of the things we consider our freedoms and our liberties really depend on us actually pulling together collectively
0: Joshua Page is an Associate Professor of Sociology and Law at the University of Minnesota. Professor Page, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Dialogue Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. Like many of us, the United States Supreme Court is conducting its business remotely. Oral arguments before the High Court are being live-streamed, and scholars are watching the proceedings with great interest. On the next Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Moores Alumni Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Law Timothy Johnson joins us to discuss how the court is operating in the age of COVID-19. Be sure to visit us at DialogueMinnesota.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.